Hi, everyone. Dr. B here again. Thank you. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me on the podcast, Ask the Dentist. It is functionally minded, and I think today's episode will clearly demonstrate that. We are going to be looking at root cause issues for most chronic diseases, and that is facial development. How does your lower face develop? Does it develop correctly? If not, what are the ramifications? And don't think you're not one of those people. I have facial development issues. I'm slightly retronathic. That affected my airway, which led to sleep apnea. I caught it late. Listen now and catch this early, especially if you're a parent and you have kids. Go see a functional dentist. We have a directory of functional dentists. Go to askthedentist.com slash directory. You can also go to our website, askthedentist.com for more information. And if you have any questions, go to speakpipe.com slash askthedentist. This episode will be answering a series of questions I've gotten received about facial development, mostly parents, but some adults that are thinking of getting expansion so that they can fix their issues with facial development. Facial development is very important. It's one of those pillars or not a pillar, but it is one of the most common reasons we fall sick and early on, not just later on in life. So if that lower face doesn't develop correctly, and that's probably about 80% of us these days, or our ancestors, it was probably less than 10%. And that's because of a lot of factors, external factors, epigenetics. We'll talk about that in this episode. Then I think you're going to want to listen. So even if you think it's too late for you, that you can expand your jaw. We'll talk a little bit about that. But learn about facial development. This is a very, very important aspect of healthcare that does not get discussed that often. And Lastly, before I read the bio of our guest, I want to say that this was a very satisfying episode for me because as a dentist, I'm spending an hour and 45 minutes with a physician. And you've heard me talk about this schism, this, these two parallel universes, one dentistry, one medicine, and we're practicing without really conferring and consulting with each other. Really, the education should be the same. And all this data that we have as dentists, that physicians have as physicians based on their training and experience on both sides, Really, if the two were joined and if we would work better together, the outcome for you as a patient would be that much better. So that part for me was very exciting. I think you're going to enjoy the discussion and hearing us go back and forth on our worlds, our universes, and how they not necessarily collide, but can merge with some very interesting results. So without any further ado, let me introduce to you Dr. Stephen Park. Many of you may have heard of him, a good friend of mine. He's an ENT surgeon out on the East Coast, and he's a sleep medicine doctor. And he's been at this for quite some time, probably as long as I've been on on the internet as well, probably 10, 12 years. And I have to say, in my early sleep apnea education, which was mostly through the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine and personal experiences with me and family members and patients, a lot of information I got from his podcast. It is called Breathe Better, Sleep Better, Live Better. I would recommend, I'll include a link to his latest podcast episode. He's on YouTube now. That's new. He gives great kind of tricks and and tweaks on how to improve your breathing and what to look for. Maybe if you need surgery, that kind of thing. We'll be talking about that in this episode. So he graduated from Johns Hopkins University and he got his uh, MD from Columbia University. So impressive guy. He's written a book called Sleep Interrupted. I'll put links for all this information. We've got some other links 
that I'm going to include as well. There's a great animation of a infant breastfeeding, kind of uh, internally what's happening. And it's so hard to describe that, but when you see the video, you're going to get it and why that's so important. Well, so we'll talk more about that. I wish we had a video of what it looks like sucking on a pacifier. Someone needs to create that video. That would be very helpful. If any of you know of a video like that, I would love to see it. Please send it to me at mark at askthedentist.com. So thanks for joining me today. Facial development. One last thing, facial development, it determines a lot in your life, your health, destiny, but more than that, your ability to thrive and have a good life, it can make a huge difference. So I encourage you to listen to this episode. Again, thanks for joining us. Hey, Steve, great to see you again. Thanks for joining us today on Ask the Dentist. My pleasure. So today we're going to talk about facial development. I know this is a topic that you're very keen on very passionate about it as I am. I just think it's going to be kind of neat for a physician and for a dentist to be talking about this uh, because we have different trainings. I mean, our training is different when it comes to this. I'm curious to see how much facial development you got. I graduated in 87 from dental school and I, I literally about 10 years ago, I had to throw away my textbook on facial development because it was so light. I was getting more information off the web. And so I wanted to find facial development, start understanding how medicine and dentistry can collaborate. We really do. There's this big schism between the two professions, which I think has harmed patient care and outcomes. And then, so we'll define it, talk about how important it is, and then talk about what causes it, what to look for if you're a parent or just a person. You know, how do you know? How do you know your face didn't develop correctly? And I just want to say up front, and I'm sure you feel the same, when we talk about mouth breathing and improper facial development, we're not trying to be negative or demeaning in any way. I mean, I have facial development issues. You probably do. This is a very common problem. I mean, crowding of teeth, that is one of the indications of facial development issues. And how many people get braces these days? It's the majority of us. So it's a very common problem. I just want to say we're all in the same boat, right? So we can say whatever we want. We're not trying to insult anyone and and that thing. So anyway, I gave you a long intro because as I said then, I've watched you do what you do online for over 12 years. You had one of the first podcasts on breathing. And there are very few physicians that do what you do. I mean, physicians, as dentists, are very vertical. I mean, once you get that degree or your special degree, in your case, you have to go out and practice. You work with a big university or a big hospital organization. You're doing surgeries, which you were doing, and there's very little time to educate. So I really just want to say to you personally, I admire what you're doing. It takes a lot, and I think it's been helping a lot of people for a long time. You wrote your book. I'll put links in for that. I've mentioned that. So anyway, let's talk about facial development. How would you, in a nutshell, define that? If someone, for the first time, well, what's, I mean, my face is my face. Don't all faces develop the same? What is facial development? Why is it important? Well, before I answer that question, let me just give credit to what credit's do. My first people to inspire me regarding this area was 12, 13 years ago. Was that, or the original person was Dr. Brian Palmer, was a, you know, one of your fellow dentists, dentist, right? Yep. Uh, and then also Bill Hang and then John Mew. And there's a whole bunch of other dentists in that era that really inspired me and opened my eyes. So that's why I learned to appreciate these issues. And then what I'm finding is that the, the more I research this, the more information I'm finding, it's just, it's just like opening up a can of worms. It mm-hmm. never ends. And all the connections are made. And that's what we're going to talk about today is how everything's connected. Um, regarding facial development and your environment and 
hormones and chemicals and drugs, everything is, is connected. So just breathing. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that leads to poor breathing and poor sleep. Right. And anyway. I'm glad you said that. I'm a big fan of the Palmer, Brian Palmer website. Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. What an amazing website. I'm going to include all the links to these sites for people that want to, and other sites too. I've got a link for an animated site of what happens to the mother's nipple when the baby mm -hmm. properly deforms yeah. it and elongates it and what it does in the back of the mouth and how the baby's mouth is so short and how the nipple can literally touch the back of the soft palate and and how the buccal fat pads, these are little pieces of fat that we all have in our cheeks that in a baby, they're extra large so that they can help shape that mother's nipple properly so that feeding and, as we'll talk about facial development, occurs properly. So what is facial development? What did you get in medical school? I'll tell you what I got in dental school, but you first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there may have been 15 minutes of embryology in, in second year or first year of medical school, but who remembers any of that? And honestly, all my education has happened in the past five, 10 years uh, in terms of overall health and wellness, because in medical school, I'm sure even in dental school, everything's about pathology and treating the pathology. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I learned way too late is that everything we do is just covering things up. Mm -hmm. We're not treating the root, the root source of the problem. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I left clinical medicine is that I thought I could help a lot more people by giving people information online just in this venue, as opposed to having to see them one-on-one. -on -one. Right. Yeah, I think that's our education. I think we don't get educated about, we get exposed to facial development. I'll use that as an example. I got a little bit of it. I got some of it in invertebrate zoology, of course, and then a little bit in dental school. But if I had gotten more, and this goes for any condition in the body, then perhaps we would be more focused on sources, root causes, because the bulk of our education is based on how to treat it, right? The parity there just doesn't, it should be better balanced, I think. And that's, I think, what you were saying. So so you got zero. I got a little bit because I'm, quote, got the dental education and this is our realm, but it wasn't enough. I, I mentioned to you earlier, I had to throw away my book on facial development. I, I keep as many of my dental textbooks as possible. I've thrown out about 85% of them because they're out of date. And then, you know, they're new ones and you buy those. But anyway, you're right. Most of the education I have gotten in as being a functionally minded dentist has been in my career, not in my curriculum. And as a surgeon, you were trained to be a safe beginner. That's the term we used in dentistry. They want you to be a safe beginner and then you're on your own, dude. You know, you got to learn what you learn. And, and I think some people are better at it than others. So, okay. So facial development, what have you learned in your practice? Because when you were doing surgery, you were trying to reverse all the negative effects and problems associated with improper facial development. So what is good facial development? What is improper facial development? And then we'll talk about how we got there. Well, let me just say that as a surgeon, I, was, I had the privilege of being a surgeon and to be able to see what's going on with my eyes, especially when they're breathing uh, during sleep. And I had to do some pretty aggressive major operations of the upper airway, mm -hmm. some pretty radical you know, jaw stuff and tongue base and palate and nose. And in doing that, in retrospect, probably could have avoided that to a certain degree, not all of them. Mm -hmm. But in many cases, you can't avoid what not doing surgery. And I'll explain why in a little bit. There's certain cases where you have to do surgery. Otherwise, yep. you can't, the gadgets techniques, they're not going to work. Right. But the, the challenge is, is in figuring out who is going to benefit from the more conservative steps. And many people do. Just by altering that lifestyles and diets, you can just make a huge difference. And then you kind of go up a continuum. Right. And that's what I, I kind of, what I teach is to, 
start conservatively and then move up, but don't give up. Right. And that's the wonder of Western medicine. That's why we need Western medicine and surgeons, because a lot of us, it's hard to reverse improper facial development. Yeah. I mean, in dental school, we got a lot of it, not as much as I've gotten in the last 15, 20 years of my practice, but the curriculum is such that you can only put in so much. And I, I didn't get any sleep information. In fact, we're beginning to see it in the dental curriculum. But when I call my alma mater in California, it's, and I want to add more to it, it's just, there's just no room. And that's sad. But continuing education is a thing and it is required to keep your license. So that's a good thing. But so facial development to me was fascinating. Again, I got a touch of it in college in vertebrate zoology and its evolution. The guy who was teaching it was into anthropology and our ancestors. And, and I had read a little bit about that even in my late teens and always thought that was fascinating. And so he was kind of talking about when people went to from eating raw meat and didn't have meals every day and maybe weren't able to cook their meat all the time to grinding corn. You know, mm -hmm. of course, that took many tens of thousands of years to accomplish, and it depended on where you were on the planet, but how that impacted our face. And then we talked a little bit about studies. There, There's this great study, not study, but a finding where they dug up 800 really well-developed males in all regards, but certainly in the facial category, development category. These were Egyptian slaves that helped build the pyramids. And this was, I think, about 2000 BC. And there wasn't one crowded tooth, one narrow jaw, one high vaulted palate. I mean, the airways were substantial. And and so that kind of stuff really got me excited and, and got me into this whole facial development thing. But I really wasn't well prepared coming out of dental school to understand. And I'll say this once, but I think how your face develops from in utero to the mm -hmm. time, actually to the time of conception, from the time of conception to let's say age six or seven or eight, that's when about 90% of it's done. And we're talking about the lower face here. We're not talking about the skull. I mean, those there are some issues there as well, but we're talking about this whole part from the maxilla down and then behind the maxilla, you know, the hyoid bone, the airway, the, the nasal passages. There's a lot of room for variability there where the skull is more of a box, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to simplify it that much, but that can go awry for a variety of reasons, which we'll talk about. So I thought that was interesting, but I had no idea what the ramifications were. And that is, if your face doesn't develop correctly, then that will determine your destiny in terms of who you meet, who you are, your personality, how successful you are, whether it's interrelational, interpersonal relationships, supporting yourself and your family, longevity, health span, lifespan. I mean, whatever you want to throw in there, beauty, looks, desirability, all of that is tied into the lower face. So let's talk about what is good facial development. I mean, from an ENT standpoint, I mean, we know that the wide jaw, the downward sloping mandible, this cupid shaped face, which is now in vogue, movie stars, how is that bad for us? And then how does that affect our airway? I mean, you're seeing this firsthand with sleep endoscopy, you're sending cameras down the throat, you see it. Dennis kind of see it indirectly through cone beam analysis and Mal and Patty scores and all that. What do you see as being poor facial development that kind of ties into everything I just said about how it can really ruin your life? Well, going back to your comment about facial beauty standards, even 50 years ago, it was normal to be to have wide jaws and squarish features for men mm -hmm. uh, to be attractive and physically viral and just everything male be, uh, having square jaws, right? Right. 
you know, all the classic movie stars in the 30s and 50s compared to now, all the younger stars have these more triangular faces. Yeah, right. And so even the perception of facial beauty has changed. Younger people would like these more rounded, softer features for men right. for women. But that's a scary thought because it's pretty clear when you look at these pictures from 50 years ago. Uh, we actually did a study before I left practice. Um, we looked at 13,000 college yearbook faces and analyze the facial width to height ratios. Were those, and, was that the yearbook, the yearbook study? Your facial college yearbooks, yeah. Yeah, that was great. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. So we analyzed the data, and it's not just surprisingly, there's a vast difference in the modern faces, which are much yeah. longer and more narrow. Right. There was even a really large study on uh, change in people's smiles, mm -hmm. uh, which is a composite of like hundreds of thousands of faces from yearbooks also. And you could tell it just when look at not just the smiles, but the facial shapes is, is different. Your modern faces are much more narrow and taller. Right. So what that means is that the more narrow your face is, the smaller your airway. It's not just this distance, but front to back distance right. too. Right. Our, our faces are more recessed where the chins are further back. Right. And that by definition narrows your airway. Yeah. Yeah. I always try and simplify it because I don't think, I mean, you know, sometimes I'll pull this out in my little plastic pygmy skull here, but the definition of a good, well-developed face, and I'm not talking about mm -hmm. beauty necessarily, but it, you know, if it's best for us in terms of being able to function, then obviously mm -hmm. it is desirable because we are organisms that want to mate and procreate. So we're mm -hmm. subconsciously looking for the right person to to mate with. So these characteristics are being picked up subliminally. But so wide jaw, and when I mm -hmm. say wide jaw and prominent jaw. It's all in relationship to the rest of the face, right? It, I mean, some people have a jaw that's too prominent, but in dentistry, wide jaw is this distance right here. So I'm, we're looking from the bottom, and this is the maxilla, looking up towards the palate, front teeth, front upper teeth. That distance there between the two second molars, from here to there, that mm -hmm. has to be wide. And it's the tongue that helps develop that. We'll talk more in specifics. And then, of course, you need that nice arch form, which you saw here. It can't be V-shaped. That would be an exaggeration, but there are V-shaped jaws. And if that box, and I call the mouth a box, I call the nose a box, and then the airways a box. But if this box doesn't form correctly, let's say it's a V-shaped palate, you get a you know very high vaulted palate, that floor of the palate, which is supposed to be nice, almost flat, but rounded, that mm -hmm ceiling of the palate is the floor of the sinus that impacts the other box so if the mouth isn't doing well that impacts the upper box which is the sinus and you can't breathe your nose properly we'll talk about nose breathing and mouth breathing but if those two boxes are impacted as you said that posterior anterior positioning that impacts the most important box well maybe not the most important box but a vital box and that is our airway also the human body we're unique we have this, I mean, all mammals have a hyoid bone, which is this little horseshoe-shaped bone that doesn't connect to any other bones. It's a floating bone. It's unique in the mm -hmm. body. This whole lower face is very unique. The mandible is articulating on a double joint, but it can dislocate. You can pop it out. What else? The tongue. The tongue is the only muscle, well, muscles. It's a series of muscles in the body that is only has one attachment point where it's free on the other end. That's bizarre, right? We take it for granted. So, but this area is so complicated that I think, and I don't have anything really to substantiate this, but I think a lot can go wrong based on our environment because it's so complicated. And then the one last complicating factor is that we're able to do what we're doing right now is speak right. because that whole voice box has dropped as we develop. A baby 
the baby, you know, the infant that's breastfeeding has a very specialized mechanism that they don't aspirate breast milk if it's done properly, but they aspirate very easily until that voice box drops. But with that comes compromise. So, so all these things impact the airway, which is what you were fixing all day long. And as you said, it could be prevented, but once, once you have sleep issues and that airway doesn't function properly, it collapses at night, we've got a problem. So what do physicians see? I mean, so you're seeing a patient, what do you look for? Yeah, I'm sure you have a checklist. What do you look for knowing even before you do an internal clinical exam that you pretty much know already Oh yeah, patients. Yeah, based so on their posture, or, or just, you're at a cocktail yeah. party. I mean, we both yeah. have said that on separate podcasts. I've heard <laughs> that. Both that too. Yeah, and you get the elbow from the wife. But I mean, what do you look for? Well, just their posture, their head posture, the chest position, the shoulder position, the mouth position with it wide open when they're breathing. Recessed, how recessed the jaw is, how narrow the face is. Right. You can just tell instantly what the airway is going to look like by looking at their outer appearance. Right. But if you look inside the nose, you can see what. What was described by you just recently, you're going to have a higher arch palate, narrow arches, maybe a scalloped tongue if they have severe sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. For children, they're going to have large lymphoid tissues like tonsils or adenoids, tongue tie, crooked teeth, dental crowding. Uh, there's a lot, of, lot of, these are pretty classic. Now, if I look in the nose, what I see is that you're going to have a, if you have a small mouth, you're going to have a deviated septum by definition. It's not just this distance. But what happens is the heart palate, like you said, it doesn't drop. So if it doesn't drop, the septum inside the nose, it just buckles to one side. Right. It's S-shaped. It buckles. Yeah, it buckles. It doesn't yeah. like, it's like a, you know, it's an S, but it, it buckles at a certain place. In the septum, there's a, a top front part is cartilage. The back is bone of the ethmoid plate. And then you have the vomer on the bottom that's bone. And when it bends, it bends on that line. Right. And that's the worst place that's for it to bend because yeah. that one side of the nasal airway is blocked. Right. Compacted. And it's, it's kind of odd that t- I would say the vast majority of cases, the septum curves to the left. I don't know why. Hmm. <laughs> that's um, interesting. It's an informal observation. Wow. That is very interesting. I have not heard that, but you would know. I mean, you've, I mean, I don't know how many of the inside of noses you've seen, but I can imagine. <laughs> Thousands, a yeah. Lot. But there's yeah. got to be a reason for that. Because you'd think it would be one side or the other, it'd be random, but there's probably a reason for that. That's interesting. Wow. The other thing I wanted to mention is that when I was first in practice, so I saw kids and adults, I didn't see deviated septums that much in younger kids or teenagers. Mm-hmm. But over the 10, 15 years or 20 years, I saw it getting younger and younger in younger yep. kids. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that. It's definitely, yeah. it's on yeah. the rise. Mm-hmm. The question is, is why I look for Mouth breathing, of course, you know, if they're at rest and they're filling out a form, I watch them. The mouth is open. Posture, as you said, that forward posture. I mean, people move their neck forward to help open the airway. And then, of course, they have neck issues. So if they complain about right. neck issues, lats, traps, that could be an issue. Sleeping, of course, snoring. This is all by reporting. You wouldn't hear it. But I've had patients fall asleep in the chair while I'm working on them and they start snoring. And it's like, oh, okay, better note that, right? And this is after you've asked them and they say, of course, they're not snoring, right? A chap lips, tongue ties, you said, tongue thrust is something dentists can see often. Grinding, bruxism. I recognize grinding at a cocktail party right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, lip posture, of course, classification of jaw position, forward, backwards. Uh, 
you know, that's easy to pick up. Uh, unfortunately, there's clinically, we don't have a good study that links bruxism to sleep apnea. And I don't know how you feel about this, but in my practice, you know, and I kept records of this probably for a period of 12 years, bruxism was so often associated with some form of sleep disorder breathing. It could have even been just RERAs or UARS, mm-hmm. upper airway resistance syndrome, but it was enough where I had to pay attention to it. I think it was almost like 85%. But I just read a study, again, it, it reinforced previous studies out of Canada, Montreal, uh, saying that we don't know why bruxism and airway issues kind of are found together. And there are many theories on that. Well, let me uh, give you one theory, one of many theories. And I don't remember the citation exactly, but there's one study that looked at RERA's uh, muscle and muscle activation and breathing. Right. And these are people with sleep apnea who also had bruxism. So what they found was that when they had these RERAs or these very subtle breathing events. The RERA is a respiratory um, effort related. Event related arousal, right? right? Okay. So it's not quite hypopnea or apnea. Right. And you, you don't even get lack of oxygen. It just but it's very common. Right. Very common. Especially in young people. Yep. And especially with pregnant women too, which they'll and talk about. Asian females. <laughs> yep. In my yeah. practice, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is that the first thing you see is a RERA. You have a slow partial blockage of the nasal airflow. And then you have brainwave arousals. And then in order, then you have muscle activation. And the theory is that the grinding and clenching is a protective reflex to wake you up before you go into an apnea. Right. I agree with that. And I've seen actographs and and studies that show that the arousal occurs right at the moment that bruxism occurs. I mean, mean, they have to be related. I mean... I agree with that. And different studies show different things. But in this study I was talking about, the bruxism happened after the arousal. And when they, applied, the CPAP, when they applied CPAP, the bruxism went away. Went away. That study I've seen, and that's interesting. Yeah. It, it has to be related. If you can yeah. take it away with positive pressure and by opening up the airway, there's got to be a connection. So yeah. fascinating. Well, at least we know how to recognize it. What are the other, how about chronic sinus infections? You must have lots of patients that come in yeah. that are always on antibiotics. Right. So yeah. it's not just a narrow nasal cavity and nasal congestion. So there's a lot of different factors. Number one, when you have apneas, by definition, you're going to have reflux. And when you have reflux, you vacuum up your normal stomach juices into your throat. And what's been found is that these juices can then go into your nose, sinuses, and ears, and your lungs. Right. So it's not just acid, but pepsin, digestive enzymes, and bacteria, bile. And they've actually found pepsin in these cavities, in yeah. nose and ears. From the stomach, yeah. 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 So you have inflammation from the stomach. Plus, if your nose is stuffy, you're going to open your mouth more and that cause your tongue to go back more. So you stop breathing more often. So you have more stomach juices. Right. And then because of this hyperarousal response, your nervous system goes over, on overdrive and your nervous system just overreacts to everything. So it, the nose just overreacts to weather changes, chemicals, smoke, perfume odors. So you have this hypersensitive nervous system, uh, congestion due to just small nasal anatomy, plus inflammation. So when you add on another variable like a cold or an allergy, it, you get this infection or allergy attack, and then it ends up being this vicious cycle. Right. Just to be clear, what you're talking about, because I don't think people really understand this, this is esophageal reflux, uh, lower yeah. esophageal uh, hernia. When you're lying down at night, stomach acids will crawl up. It's not up, but it's along the esophagus and get into the eustachian canal, into the nasal passages, into the mouth. Dentists see this as erosion, has right. a very characteristic look. It's on the linguals. It's 
Mm -hmm. uh, there's very little saliva in the mouth in deep sleep by design. So the pH isn't buffered, can cause a lot of damage. But, and obviously there's a connection between that and sleep apnea. We see a lot of that, but I mean, what do you do about that? I mean, you can't just give, most physicians would just give medication for the hiatal hernia, for the, the regurgitation of stomach acids. But what would an, right. an enlightened ENT do? Well, most ENTs would give medications or send them to a GI right. doctor. Yeah. But in my experience, that almost never works long-term. Right. So when you have reflux and these other symptoms, right, yeah. the many side effects from yeah. these long these pump inhibitors, but ultimately what's causing it is not reflux, but what's causing the reflux, which is the apneas. And that right. can also suck up your stomach into your, esoph into your chest cavity, right. causing the hyalur hernias. That negative pressure. So you have to treat, exactly. So whether or not you have apnea, you have to treat the obstructive breathing events. Right. First of all, lot dietary lifestyle changes. Then most often for the milder cases, I don't send them to a dentist to do what you do, very, using very uh, different options. And then I also make sure that they can breathe really well through the nose so they can keep the mouth closed. And then if they do go into some kind of sleep apnea treatment, you have to breathe well through your nose for these options to work very well. Right. And so you said exactly what I thought you would say. You would treat the sleep apnea. And that's treating yeah. the root cause. That's what yeah. I would do as a dentist. I would recognize that. I look for a hoarse voice. I can see lingual erosions. I can see the effects of regurgitation of stomach. I mean, it's, it's almost on a cocktail face-to-face -face yeah. basis. So why isn't this the norm, Steve? I mean, <laughs> physicians and dentists are, the dentist, if, if he's pretty good, he'll refer to a primary care physician and that then it'll either go to a GI expert or they will prescribe, what's the number one medication in the US right now? It's a stomach acid inhibitor, a ACE. A, proton pump inhibitor. A proton pump inhibitor, yeah, right. I mean, that's what's being given out. And when yeah. really it's an indication of something even more serious and right. it's being ignored. Right. Not to mention all the documented long-term side effects like dementia, osteoporosis, bile right. uh, dysfunction, right. memory By problems. That <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Enlightened practitioners can recognize sleep apnea. I always say that dentists can recognize it because of our training a mm -hmm. decade sooner than a physician. That's obviously not true with all physicians and all dentists, unfortunately. But the point is, is that we, based on facial development and, and the things that go along with it, we, we know where to go. I mean, we've recognized the signs of a very serious, insidious disease. And mm -hmm. I guess the question I'm trying to formulate here is, why aren't we doing it? And how are we going to do it better? Is it because dentistry and medicine need to collaborate? Is it because our training is poor? Is it because of the drug companies? And the system, Western medicine, which dentistry yeah. is part of. I mean, what's causing all this? I mean, a, a yeah. small percentage is getting caught. 90% of people that sleep apnea are undiagnosed, something like right. that. Yep. So what's going so, on? What's, what's uh, the first? I have a very cynical answer to this. Um, okay. the, the system is set up not to address these issues because it's profitable. Yes. I would um, say that's, that's 100% a very true. cynical statement. And there are slow inroads. Um, I have a couple of dental colleagues here that are, are getting in a curriculum into the medical schools. And it's, it's, it's still kind of in the early stages right now. So they're listening. But even when I was in for my medical school as a professor, as an assistant professor, I tried to get more sleep curriculum into the didactics and they didn't want to listen to it because they said, well, we have too many other th important things to teach. Right. There's no room for it. Right. And I think I read the statistics only about, they only get like one to two hours for the entire four years on sleep. Yep. Exactly. 
And so that's one of the reasons why I left. I mean, I, I did everything possible to increase awareness amongst my colleagues, um, medical curriculum, even with my academy for the sleep academy, multiple years, I tried to present courses on upper airway resistance syndrome, which is kind of against the grain in mainstream sleep medicine. Right. And it got rejected every time. They yeah. don't want to hear about it. Right. And why do you think that is on that level specifically? Mm -hmm. Other physicians? Because they have to change their change how they define sleep apnea and what right. to treat. Right. And honestly, even the, the sleep apnea that they, they acknowledge is not being treated properly 90% right. of the time. And yep. even the temperature that they treat, do treat, most of those patients fail at their CPAP machines. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I want to talk about CPAP later. What uh, do you ever, I mean, you have kids. I think you have two boys, right? Three boys. Three sons. Wow. You're an expert. <laughs> uh, do you ever wish that you were a trained to be a pediatric ENT, airway centric? You know what? I know a lot of pediatric ENTs and unfortunately they are just as, I'm not going to say clueless, but not as knowledgeable as you want. I thought that's what you were going to say. Specialists, right. But they look at the airway when they're asleep right? <laughs> and with a tube in the throat. Right. They don't see what's happening live when they're sleeping and breathing on their own. Right. And I mean, there's a couple of pediatric ENTs that I've talked to who's slowly coming on board, but it's, it's, it's very challenging to get them to accept this, this concept that these breathing problems are a major source of what they see in their practices every day, but right. they don't treat it. For yep. example, one, one common thing that, that I saw a lot in young kids was epiglottic obstruction. It's called laryngomalacia. Right. So the epiglottis is that cartilage hood on top of the voice box. And because the jaws are kind of pushed further back, and for reasons we'll talk about later, the cartilage itself is, is softer. Mm -hmm. It flaps in like a valve when you breathe in. And most of the time, this doesn't lead to apnea. It just causes lots of arousals. Yeah. Can you hear that? Is there a way to listen for that? Oh, oh yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It sounds like croup. Exactly. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. Wow. Hypothesizing <laughs> that some cases of croup, not all, but some cases of croup are actually epigallic obstruction. Right. A lot of that probably has to do with the mineral content that we're exposed to as kids. We'll talk about that. That's on our list. Mm -hmm. But... But okay, the reason I asked that question is because as a dentist, I was referring, I would recognize that there was a breathing issue in a one-year-old mm -hmm. or a two-year-old, even mm -hmm. earlier. But And then I would educate the parent. It would take 30 minutes. And then I would refer the parent. And of course, it's hard to refer as a dentist directly to a pediatric NT. It would be to the primary mm -hmm. care physician. There was always this pushback. And this happened to, with adults as well. And we've talked about this where I went around that system and was able to refer directly to a sleep clinic, but that was for adults. But a lot of pushback, and I still get this from parents, my doctor says the adenoids and the tonsils are not affecting the child's breathing. They'll grow out of it. I get a lot of that. And in the meantime, they're growing not out of it, but into right. something that is not the whole facial development thing. So what's your view on that from your side of, you know, in the medical world, why is that being done? You probably okay, will- so I'm going to say something that's not going to be very popular in, the, in my field, but having been in the field, having practiced what I do in ENT, it comes, I think it comes down to it, not in everyone, but subconsciously, there's always that monetary dollar value. Tonsils mm -hmm. and adenoids pay almost nothing. You lose money uh, by doing an operation on kids. Right. That's why these ENTs and um, academics, they do really high volumes in one mm -hmm. day right. just to make up for the loss of revenue. Right. But most of the, the smarter ENT practices, not directly, but indirectly, it's kind of discouraged. Right. 
I can see that. And I'm glad you said that. I was suspected that, but it's the same in dentistry. I mean, it's hard to make money with the payment we get from third parties because Mm -hmm. we are able to, we can only charge a half or a third of what we do on, you know, for adult teeth as opposed to baby teeth. And so we have to do them in volume. And so if you just want to do, if you're facing just doing one, maybe you don't want to do that where if you can do five or six in a quadrant, then maybe it's worth it. So this is another example. And I talk about this all the time where the third parties, even though they say they don't want to get in the way with Mm -hmm. a treatment planning between provider and patient, they do Mm -hmm. because what they pay out, I mean, it's like Medicare. I mean, a lot of the time you would have to close your doors. The dentist would have to close their doors. And obviously that's not going to work. And these are not ultra wealthy dentists that are making money hand over foot. You don't see that a lot with these insurance plans. So that's why I stopped taking insurance. That's why a lot of dentists are doing that. Delta Dental is a perfect example of that. Largest dental insurer. Again, I use the word insurance in the dental industry loosely. It's not insurance. It doesn't cover you except for a small amount every year. It's a benefit, but they're the largest dental benefit company in the US and they have 300 different plans and if you're, you know, if you get in too deep with them, it, it's going to impact you financially and it influences how that dentist practices. And I yeah. hate that when that happens, because in dental school, we're pure, like you are in medical school, you're idealistic mm-hmm. and you want to do what's best for the patient. But then you mm-hmm. come out in this cruel, harsh economic reality of practicing. And I mean, physicians are lucky because you're under one umbrella. You've got a hospital administrator like Kaiser. I'm not a big fan of Kaiser, but one of the advantages of Kaiser is that you can just kind of do what you want to do. Although in sleep apnea, you are limited to how many times you can RX the uh, prescribe the PSG and you're actually Mm -hmm. rewarded for not prescribing it too much. So that's another story. But there are so many different ways that when you come out of medical or dental school that you are hindered, you cannot practice the way you were taught to practice. Isn't that Mm -hmm. sad? And the example of the TNA surgery, tonsils and adenoids, Right. And the child can't breathe, it's affecting, and their nose is blocked, and they're tossing and turning, they're getting fidgety, ADHD is coming up for them. I mean, it's terrible. Well, one of the um, alternative options for kids whose ENTs are really reluctant to offer surgery is to send them to a pediatric dent- airway-centric dentist mm-hmm. and start the powder expansion much earlier. Yes. You just get okay. that started, and if the tonsils don't shrink, usually it, it shrinks. Exactly. It takes, it takes yeah. some time. And you can always reserve the surgery for later. But I usually get the dentist involved as soon as possible, even before the um, Right. And that's wonderful that you do that because you know so much. I would say that 99.9% of physicians don't do that or know to do that. And I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes you have to bypass the old system. And that's one way to do it. And my recommendation now to parents with young adults is to get that maxillary expansion in place right away. It can happen pretty quickly at that age because the the bones are so soft and malleable. And here's one important fact that I think needs to be reinforced is that I don't want to say it's too late after age six or seven, but that's you got to get all that expansion and that assessment and treatment done, especially if it involves maxillary expansion, rapid maxillary expansion, RME before age six. It's hard to do it after that. It's hard to do it as an adult and it doesn't always work out. And one thing we haven't touched upon, let's talk about tongue tie and the action of the tongue from the time Mm -hmm. of breastfeeding to swallowing, tongue position at rest. It's that tongue, which is a series of muscles. It's not one muscle. The tongue has to be doing the right thing for this 
lower jaw to be shaped correctly. And if this box mm -hmm. is shaped correctly, then everything else is going to work great. What kind of training does an ENT get on tongue position, tongue ties? Why don't ENTs do tongue tie surgeries? I know some do, but it's not. Anyway, you, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. Uh, first of all, we get zero training on tongue ties. Yeah. It gets mentioned as something that happens within 30 seconds. That's it. In the old days, before we even knew about tongue ties, you know, the midwives were doing the tongue tie releases all the time. Right. And we had these uh, long pinky, pinky nails. nails. They just yep. flipped it. Yep. And that's good and for an anterior tongue tie, but it's yeah, not good for a posterior must, tongue tie. But they must have helped so many babies yep. back then. And I'm, I'm going to argue that this posterior tongue tie or the anterior tongue tie, it's happening in much more frequency now than 50 years ago because of the facial development. I think the soft tissue and the bony development is all connected. But again, you don't get paid for a tongue tie release. Right. <laughs> and to come and evaluate it and, and to come to the hospital or to the uh, NICU to do a right. tongue tie release, it's no, no ENT is going to do it. Right. I find it fascinating. And again, this goes back to the schism between medicine and dentistry, but geographically or actually anatomically speaking, you know, there's a line drawn in the sand. And you just illustrated that by saying that you really, it was mentioned, tongue tie surgery. I think ENTs, there should be crossover where ENTs should be looking at the tongue because that affects facial development, which affects what you do later on down the road. But again, there's no incentive to do it that way. Why is that line drawn in the sand? And what is that line? Is it the oropharynx, the nasopharynx? Where does the ENT world start? Uh, and where does the dental world end or, or vice versa? No, ENTs claim that we have jurisdiction over the soft tissues, right? Right. <laughs> Although there's a huge overlap between what you do and what we do. Right. But- Should be more. Yeah. And that, that way we have much more collaboration too. Right. But one thing about tongue tie problems is that I've read all the articles that come out in our journals. And every time it comes out, these are very lukewarm results, meaning that you, should, yeah. maybe you, should, you can be weighed on it. Not everyone who has a tongue tie needs to be addressed. But the problem is that I think we still left these studies with a, a pre-existing bias mm -hmm. that, that, that it's being overblown and overdiagnosed and overtreated. And that's one of the biggest criticisms that I'm, I'm hearing right now from pediatricians and ENTs. Right. It's very complicated. And I think we've just frustrated a lot of viewers and listeners because now they understand how complicated it is and how mm -hmm. difficult the communication is. And it's not binary. I mean, you don't just have big tonsils and get them taken out and the kid starts breathing better, unfortunately. And we haven't even touched upon myofunctional therapy, which I don't think we should because that's a topic oh, unto itself, but that's right. the learning how to... Let's touch on that a little bit. Let's say a eight-year-old gets nasal surgery, polyps, deviated septum, and they've been mouth breathing their whole life. And they're already eight years old. The muscle memory is set. There's no tongue tie, or maybe there is a tongue tie, but their swallow reflex has been affected by that mouth breathing. They have airway issues already. What typically happens in the medical world is the surgery is a success. There's patency, right? Mm -hmm. But there's no follow-up, or usually I like to do myofunctional therapy before and after. And I've seen this. I've seen this with my kids where, you know, I wasn't as enlightened back then, but then we followed it up with, I mean, they had a successful surgery, but they didn't know how to breathe through their nose. You have to, mm -hmm. it's not like James Nestor says, our friend James Nestor, but it's the lost art of breathing. I mean, we have to learn how to do that. Breathing is not innate, just like sleep. We have to really work on it to do it properly. So what would you say to parents about that? How many physicians would 
the physicians I know, and this is certainly not you because you know about all this, but one of my family members, a son-in-law had surgery at Stanford, big success, still couldn't breathe. I mean, I tested it. He could breathe through his nose, but the mouth fell open at night. He still had the very dry nasal passages and, and the headaches and, and the sinus headaches and, and all that. And of course, we got him to mouth tape and we got him the proper, we had to go to a BiPAP for that, but it all worked, but none of that follow-up occurred. And this has a lot to do with poor compliance with the CPAP because the physician, the sleep MD will refer it out to the lab the CPAP lab people, the technicians, and then they throw a machine at you. There's very little instruction. And 30% of the time, someone will stick with it for the first year. That's low compliance for a disease that can cause you to have a stroke, drop dead, mm -hmm. gain weight, high yeah. blood pressure and all that. So what needs to change there? I know what has to change in the dental world and we're working on it, but what has to change there? Does that come with better collaboration with dental colleagues? Is it training? I just found that I hit a wall with my medical mm -hmm. colleagues, yeah. even within my department. I was at a pretty high level with our academies, with um, the sleep academy. And if, as long as I, I stuck to the standard recommendations, right. you, you can't rock the boat. That's one of the reasons why, and I know this is somewhat of a, again, a pessimistic answer, but that's why I left medicine. So by educating the lay public, you can do a lot more to help people than trying to change it from the top down. Right. And so when the patients and the, the general public demand better answers, then the profession will, will listen and do something about it. So to serve your patients better, if you were to go back into practice, you would open up a private practice, maybe with a partner that was like-minded, and it would be cash only. I mean, that's the only way you can do it. Well, I, I did that for, to a certain degree. So the right. first half of my practice, that for 13 years, I was in private practice by myself. Okay. okay. Uh, at the end, I was, only, I was taking only three insurances. Everything else was cash. So I, I had the most ideal practice you can imagine. <laughs> it, was, right. it was beautiful to think about. Uh, and then we had the, cra the crash in you know, 2009. COVID, right. Yeah. Oh, 2010, oh, right. Yeah. There was a yeah, crash. There, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, then that's, that's when I went to academic, academic yeah. medicine. That's yeah, right. and academic, right. Uh, that's sad. <laughs> I, I really want viewers and listeners, because I talk about this till I'm bleeding through the years. I mean, just that your practitioner is so handcuffed in so many different ways. And, and so be patient with them, ask questions. That's why I support a directory of functional dentists. I think that's the future of dentistry. Dentistry is under attack now with organized healthcare. Uh, it's, it's what happened to medicine back in the 70s oh, and 80s. Wow. And you know, it, back in my day, 50%, 40, actually 60% of practices were sole proprietors. And yes, we took insurance, but we had some control there. We could spend a little extra time. We could do something. We could go off the books. And and then halfway, well, actually 10 years into my career, I did dentistry for almost 35 years. I had to change all that because it wasn't working. And now it's up to 60% are now corporate chain dentistry. Wow. It's a chain. And these corporate like private equity firms are coming in and buying up dental practices. The right. dentist becomes an employee. They're there for a few months to a few years. And then it's always someone different. And the patient really is being looked at as not as a human being, an organism or a super organism. They're being looked at as an insurance plan. Yeah. And that's kind of what is going on in medicine to a degree. Well, medicine is much far more advanced than, than where you are right now. Yes, exactly. But we're, we're, we're right behind you, man. <laughs> and to the detriment to of, of so much. And, and so anyway, that's why I really try and push this agenda of being functionally minded and not taking insurance plans, maybe taking, uh, 
we would file the insurance claim for the patient, but we would ask for payment up front. And right. the irony is that they would get paid quicker by the insurance company within a week, seven days, seven mm -hmm. to 10 days, where we would have to go after them after 30 days, which is the law right. required payment. And we would have to have a whole staff that would work on getting that payment from the insurance company. And that yeah. just increases your costs. I mean, I'll stop there because I just go bonkers, you know. Uh, so anyway, but okay, so let's go back to what are you planning on doing? I mean, obviously, you're still on the web, you're educating, you're an influencer, I think one of the best out there, because you're a physician, and you've seen that side of things, that treating symptoms only, what are you planning on doing? Are you writing another book? Will you, you said you were not going to go into practice again? Are you coaching? Right. So I am doing virtual coaching, but that's not my main source of income or activity. I basically, I produce online courses mm -hmm. to, uh, to various degrees of complexity or cost. For providers? Um, no, no. Okay. The lay public. Yeah. Very targeted people who are really, really interested in taking care of their, their own health. Right. To get to empower them to take measures or, mm -hmm. or take maneuver, do maneuvers or do what it takes to take care of their health on their own. Right. And I start with not just treating the sinus infection, but treating the lifestyle. The diet, right. stress factors, right. exercise, psychological states. Right. Um, the, the holistic person is not, and not just organ or cavity, nasal right. cavity. See, I think um, that's one of the most noble things that any healthcare practitioner can do, and and that's where it started. I mean, the word doctor comes from the Latin root to te of the verb to teach, mm -hmm. not to heal, and that's what we are first, and that's exactly what you're doing. And I agree with you. Reaching out, and I'm I'm always kind of going back and forth on this because a lot of practitioners want me to teach and and we do we have some curriculum coming out for our network of providers and I'm getting access to other scientists uh, we're going to do a seminar with the lead scientist for the oral microbiome test mm -hmm. Russell and and stuff like that but I see that for a small select group of practitioners but mm -hmm. to affect change in the system I'm doing what you're doing. I'm going to the public. I'm teaching the public how to bypass the need for seeing all these dysfunctional providers, or at least when they do have to go in, they know what's going on. They understand right. what the weakness is in the system and pick from that system what you need. So I think what you're doing is the right thing to do. It's admirable. Well, I'm not surprised that you've kind of gone along the same pathways I have mm -hmm. discovered that you have to empower the patient first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ironically, yeah, ironically, that's what the pharmaceutical companies did. Remember when <laughs> they lost the oh, yeah. ability to bribe the physician, then the big pharma went direct via TV ads to the right. public. So They're then the consumer, public yeah. will go in and ask the doctor, hey, by the way, I'd like to get a NorCal, you know, or a NorCode or something. You know, I mean, there's so many problems with that. But I think people like you really are gems. And I would encourage people to listen to people like you. I mean, you have a formal education. You were in the trenches. You've come out now. You survived the trenches. And your wisdom can save lives and affect people and improve their lives. So I think it's great. Again, I, I don't want to embarrass you anymore. But but let's talk. Uh, you gave me a list mm -hmm. about things that reasons for crooked teeth. So let's talk about that. And that'll probably take up the last 20 minutes of this episode, okay. which, which is great. Mm -hmm. But but let me just say crooked teeth is one of the big indicators that your face isn't where it should be. And why is that? Because the jaw, the same number of teeth come in over time, right? And we're talking about the adult teeth, but it applies to the deciduous teeth as well. 
But as you're developing into a young adult, and we're talking about under age 10, that jawbone has to grow to a certain width and size, even forward size, downward forward growth. It's what we call it in dentistry. If that isn't accomplished, then that same number of teeth that genetically have the same front to back, mesial distal distance, when they're all stacked up in that nice arch form, they take up a certain amount of room. And if the jaw isn't big enough, as those teeth come in, the wisdom teeth being the last, they're not going to fit alongside each other. They're going to start doing this to make room for all those teeth. So I just wanted to make that clear and simple. Crooked teeth is a, how many people have crooked teeth these days, right? Orthodontists are killing it. It's, It's one of the most lucrative parts of dentistry. And I would say in this country, if you can afford it, I mean, we we can, we have insurance pays for part of it, a portion of it, but you know, 80, 90% of us are getting braces because that jaw didn't grow and the same number of teeth come in anyway. So let's talk about the first soft diets. Yes. So you, you mentioned this before. I think this is one of the biggest factors in dental crowding and this started to happen hundreds of years ago with the change in their agricultural practices. Mm Mm-hmm agriculture, lots of grains, softer foods. And there's lots of anthropologists, you may be familiar with Dr. Robert Corcini, mm-hmm. who looked at, I think he studied populations in Kentucky, rural Kentucky in the 1940s and 50s. And he found that communities that ate softer diets had much more crowded teeth. And you see, you see these examples across the board all throughout the world in various um, decades or centuries by different observers. Mm-hmm. And even the, you know, the classic Dr. Um, Price. Um, Western Price. Western yeah. Price. Yeah, so he, he observed that all these cultures that ate naturally off the land had perfect right. teeth and no cavities. Right, a man ahead, he's a ahead of his people. time. Yeah. yeah, and he was a dentist. In dental school, he doesn't get mentioned. Really? Yes, yeah, at least in it, my it, it's curriculum. Like, it's against the grain. It is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he didn't get everything um, perfect, but he was way uh, ahead of his time. Oh, yeah. And he really was an original thinker. And that whole mm-hmm. factor X and and diet, and I mean, he made so many assumptions that were correct. And even today, we still aren't taking on completely, which is sad because we know now we have the studies to support what he thought was is correct. Yeah. So soft and diet. Then soft diet. And actually, one, one interesting story that I came across last year was um, there's a book called Consider the Fork by B. Wilson. Yes. Have you seen that? Um, I've heard there's of a it. Section, there's a, you should read that chapter on malocclusion. It's really I'm fascinating. i read that down. She references Dr. C. Loring Brace, another anthropologist, and he studied skulls in ancient England and also China. And he studied that period when they transitioned from cutting with their, just ripping the bone, the meat off the bones to using right. knives, you right. know, metallic technology. And of course, people who are rich had access to the knives, the cutting tools, right? right? Yes. So yeah. we found that people who are rich who had the cutting tools had before they had edgy edge bites, but then once they started eating with the knives, they had an overbite. Exactly. And this happened in both times in England and China. Right. And I mean, the people that of no means, I mean, you know, I mean, we ate with our hands. Right. And so you pull meat off the bone, maybe mm-hmm. chew on the bone, but then being able to cut it into small pieces, then came the blender and right. microwave and, and then obviously processed foods, mm-hmm. which aren't real foods. Absolutely. In dentistry, we're big, and there's a lot of pushback because parents are afraid of choking aspiration. And I'm interviewing a inventor who has developed a, a line of, of eating tools and plates and cups instead of 
sippy cups. You can a, a toddler can drink from a cup with haptic feedback, and that allows for proper development. It's important to recognize this, and in dentistry, we're we're getting on that bandwagon. So, mm-hmm. I advise my parents to patients to try solid food. Let your kid chew on a carrot or a piece of meat. And obviously they have to be watched, but our ancestors did it. Now, some very enlightened parents will say, yeah, but our ancestors had different jaw shapes and their airways were bigger. And, And some of that's true, but I have two grandchildren I'm experimenting on them every time I see them. My, my daughter is very forward thinking on that and they're able to do this. I mean, my grandson, who's a year old, is drinking from a cup like this. Mm-hmm. Now it's a soft wow. silicone cup with a, a big weight at the bottom. So when he plops it down, it kind of rocks back and forth, but it stays upright. He spills a little bit, but he loves it. He's never seen mm-hmm. a sippy cup and he's off the pacifier. So these things are important, but the right diet, that's something we've lost. And even as adults, even as adults, uh, we're eating a lot of processed foods. And that's Mm -hmm. why when I wake up in the morning, I live in Napa Valley. So we have these handmade pork liver meat sticks that are really Mm -hmm. chewy. And Mm -hmm. I work at it and I have my green iced tea and that's my breakfast because I want to wake up with that muscular attention and adversity of chewing. And I think that really does help. So at any age, certainly from zero to six, zero to eight, zero to 10, get your kids to chew on chewy things. It's so important. And after that, a healthy nutritious diet and not just Right. Our food. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Goldfish, right. no goldfish. That gives right. you cavities, oral dis- oral microbiome right. dysbiosis. Right. It'll turn you into a mouth breather and and then basically your your jaw is not developing. So tongue position, right. but also that it's the muscles, not just the right. tongue, but the muscles of mastication that form the lower face. It's not like a long bone in the leg. I mean, obviously right. it's because we're walking and all that, but you need the muscles to form the skeleton. Well, that reminds me of that. I think there's a saying in dentistry that the jaws are formed. They don't form on their own, but they're formed by the surrounding areas. Yes. Like the muscles in the airway. And who said, was it Dr. Um, Melvin Moss? Uh, have you heard of him? Yes. He's dean at Columbia Dental School. And he was actually my anatomy professor in college, wow. in, in medical school. Yeah. I didn't wow. know he was that famous. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of leads into this, the second point, which is number two, bottle feeding. Mm-hmm. So soft thoughts, so soft is number one, bottle feeding, uh, pacifier use, thumb sucking. These are what are called the non-nutritive sucking forces. Right. And this is a major problem that, that happened just at the turn of the century with modern technology. And because you had infant formula, a lot of other social factors that caused the women to bottle feed more also. Uh, and like then the American- And silicone nipples, which are right. so different from, it makes it too easy for the child to yeah. suck. Right. They don't, they don't have to work. They don't have to work and the milk's going into the wrong part of the mouth. So then the swallow reflexes is not the way it should be. And you do that for a few months and you've got a different kid. Lower faces is different. Yeah. It's sad. And every, every infant newborn I see these days has a pacifier all the time. Yeah. All the time. Because it makes the parent's life easier for one, but it's sad. And then what really gets me are that a lot of these pacifiers have an orthodontic label on them orthodontically approved or that to me is false advertising those companies should be sued for false Mm -hmm. advertising because Mm -hmm. there is no orthodontically approved uh, pacifier it's impossible Mm -hmm. they don't deform and flatten out and elongate and they make it too easy for the baby compared to mother's nipple so 
Now, this is a sensitive topic because we're both men yeah. and we're not working women. And so I, I think that has to come on the corporate level. They mm -hmm. need to have breastfeeding stations where you can bring your child in for the first year and and breastfeed on demand in the office, in your cubicle, wherever. We really got to get that going. And it has think, to be- I think they have that more in Europe, right? Oh, they do. Oh, it's amazing yeah. in Europe. It's wonderful. Yeah. No, it's just, it works way better. Let's talk about nasal congestion. Okay. So it's that chicken or the egg, what causes what? Does it basically on the development cause nasal congestion or vice versa? Mm -hmm. And I think it's, uh, it's like a vicious cycle. It's, it's one process that, that leads to both. But there are studies showing that if you plug someone's nose when you're born, your face mm -hmm. doesn't develop properly. Yep. We also know about um, Dr. Mew's gerbil boy picture that you see yes. on the internet. Yes. Kid got a gerbil for his tenth birthday, and then his face went from normal to really small and unrecessed after a couple of years. That's why it's so important to breathe through your nose properly. Mm -hmm. And then I think James Nestor's book "Breathe" really brought to the forefront the importance of breathing properly through your nose. That is a must. Way beyond, yeah, yeah, way beyond any one of us could do. Right. We'll leave it to mm -hmm. a healthcare journalist to do it right. I mean, he did what we should have been doing for decades and he did it so well. Uh, I remember speaking to him about mouth taping. Mm -hmm. I was at the airport getting on a plane and we had someone introduced us, I forget who it was. And and I was kind of blowing his mind on what I use it for in my practice and how I mm -hmm. promote it and what kind of tape. And then I remember, and this was before the book was published. And then he got back to me, he was all excited. He said, thank you so much. And he went down that rabbit hole and he sent me, I remember, and I didn't know this. He sent me this little image probably taken with his iPhone because he did a lot of research taken from an old book from the 1800s where a dentist was writing about how important it is to breathe through your nose. And mm -hmm. you see, I didn't have that perspective. Like, dentistry has been talking about it for a long time, but then we forgot it, right? And maybe it's the same in medicine, but I remember how excited he was to hear that because for him, that gave him affirmation that this is the lost art of breathing. This is one aspect of it. So wonderful book, highly recommend it. I'm going to go down to his uh, retreat in Costa Rica in March and and speak on whatever he wants me to speak on. I think what he's done is amazing. And I'm very curious. I'm going to be interviewing him soon, hopefully. Very curious to see what he's working on for his next book. And I have a feeling because oh, yeah. he's spending a lot of time in Paris. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be on facial development. Mm. Wouldn't that be great? Because in Paris, there's that big catacombs with all the skulls in it. And it's a great place mm -hmm. to study um, the skulls and, and the facial development of our ancestors. So, But anyway, that's just a guess. I have no inside information on that. So I'll probably hear from James saying, what are you doing? My publisher mm -hmm. is uh, reaching out to me. Well, let me just say one thing about nasal congestion. Every time I have addressed sleep apnea in a patient and either referred it out for surgery or fixed it with a mandibular advancement device or just mouth taping, mouth taping alone, forcing the issue, getting right. that person to breathe through their nose at night, that's six, seven hours of the day, right? Mm -hmm. That's a great time to, if they can do it, if they can't do it, that's a different story for me. Then it's a differential diagnosis. It's a great tool because every time I ask someone, do you breathe through your nose? I don't even listen to them anymore because I don't trust the answer. I just go right to the tape. I have tape there. I give them a roll of tape. I text him the next morning and I ask him, is the tape still on? Did it come off or is the tape still on? And did you toss and turn a lot? That tells me where to go. And, but by forcing the issue, then the nasal congestion goes away by advancing the mandible and getting the patient to be able to sleep better and breathe through their nose properly. That fixes nasal congestion happened to my wife. She was on antibiotics for decades. 
in the last 15 years hasn't had any nasal congestion at all. It's amazing. So nasal congestion is a sign that Mm -hmm. something's wrong. I would add one more suggestion to the mouth taping Mm -hmm. for everyone. If you introduce it to anybody to add breathe right strips. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Because that because opens up if, the, the entry right, as well. Right. Because if you start breathing through your nose, it's already a little bit narrow to begin with. And, but you're going to get more airflow through a smaller airway right. that causes your nostrils to cave in more. Exactly. It's a yeah, it's simple plumbing. You know, it's the yeah, same yeah. thing as plumbing. <laughs> and uh, smaller the aperture. Right. Yeah. I mean, I like for, for some, for the nasal strips for some is not enough. I recommend right. those little silicone nose plugs or spreaders. Right. Whatever you can do to keep your nostrils open. Exactly. Inside or outside. Right. You have to experiment. And what, what is the test that ENTs do where... The cardiac maneuver. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Lift up, the, lift up the nostrils like this. Exactly. Right. So that's important. That you can do at home. You can Google that and that's a great way to know whether you have issues or not. What's next on the list? Prematurity. Yeah. So there's a study many years ago that showed that children who are premature, born premature, had higher rates of sleep apnea. Mm. Now, this is not a direct correlation to crooked teeth, but I think I can make the argument that if you have sleep apnea, you're going to have some degree of dental crowding, right. if not a lot of dental crowding. In many people, it doesn't manifest until later in life when you gain some weight. But you st- if you start off with a small jaw, you're going to be more predisposed to getting sleep apnea later on in life. Exactly. And then you'll get um, and so, And this goes to what you said before, that sleep, these facial development issues don't happen once you're born. It happens from time of conception. And so... If the mother has some susceptibility to these breathing problems or health problems, they're not, she's not eating well, the baby is not going to develop fully. And so if you don't fo- form your face fully during those 40 weeks, then when you're born, it's, you're off to a late start already. Late start and sometimes yeah. something you can never recover from. Like you're right. always behind the eight ball kind of thing. Right. Yeah. If anything, if all babies born these days are behind the eight ball. They are. For that reason, yeah. And what is that costing our medical system, you know, and Medicare? And mm-hmm. I mean, the numbers just, I mean, there's a study out of Columbia College back in, we just did a post on it. We're about to do a post on it. We had a hygienist summarize the study in 2014. Mm-hmm. It was done by an insurance company, which is interesting. Don't get turned off by that because the insurance company has good ways of recording data and all those people in the plan are well covered, Right. They have dental insurance and they have medical insurance. This is hundred and almost 150,000 people that were followed. And when their oral health was addressed and gum disease was prevented, they calculated a savings of savings in systemic issues like metabolic syndrome, diabetes, weight gain, all of that, high blood pressure, savings in healthcare dollar, treating those comorbidities of oral disease. I mean, you don't hear that too often, right? by 26%. Wow. 26%. That's huge. That was a pretty good study. These weren't people off the street with no insurance that were pretty sick to begin with, right? Oral health needs to be addressed by medical insurance companies. There's a division too between dental insurance and medical insurance. Dental insurance is a joke. It doesn't cover you and and it doesn't cover the elderly. Medicare, there's no dental component to it. And that's where most of my patients, I stop seeing them and they only come in for extractions or gum disease and infection fistula, a big infection that is causing their heart to put at risk. I mean, it's amazing. Can even cause Alzheimer's, right? And hasten Mm -hmm. the oncoming of Alzheimer's. So fluoride, that's a big one. Yeah. Very controversial. (laughs) Back to what you were saying when you speak to your physicians about cutting edge stuff, 
I do pretty well with other dentists until I bring up fluoride and my thoughts mm -hmm. on fluoride. And then they will leave the room or hang yeah. up or... <laughs> if you read up on the history of fluoride and how it's added to a water supply, it's, mm -hmm. it's really disturbing. Yep. The forces that are involved, you know, the yep. industry, aluminum industry, the phosphate mining industries, government, the ADA, it's uh, really, really fertilizer disturbing. Fertilizer companies, yep. Yeah. So what got my interest on this topic was in residency in the 19, this is like the 1990s, we saw a lot of what's called otosclerosis, which is the inner ear hardening of the inner bones, the middle bones, the last bone called the stapes. Right. It's like a piston to the inner bone. And that joint becomes stiff. Yes. There's a new bone growth called otosclerosis. If it doesn't move, and you can't hear. Right. And so we offer surgery, which is a very, very satisfying operation. It's like life-changing for some people. They can hear but again. Only if it's really, really severe. But in the early stages, we don't offer surgery because you don't do surgery for mild disease. And so one of the ways that we treated this was to give sodium fluoride, which in theory helps to prematurely harden the bone. And we see Interesting. this. Wow. So instead of, instead of getting worse, it just kind of levels off. So I personally, I must have given a couple of dozen patients lots of sodium fluoride. Do you <laughs> remember purpose. the strength? What was the dosage? Do you remember? I don't remember. Okay. I do not remember. Yeah. Now, if you give sodium fluoride orally, you have to actually ask yourself, is it going only to the ear or elsewhere? And of course, it's going to all the other parts of the body, right? Right. And how safe is sodium fluoride? And oh. all the um, studies on fluorination you know, in, in uh, Michigan and upstate New York, that was done with sodium fluoride. But what's in the water supply now is not sodium fluoride. It's sodium fluorosilicic acid, exactly. which is a toxic waste yeah. product right. from plastic. Yeah. It's um, from a smokestack. <laughs> it's from a filter on yeah. a smokestack. They couldn't throw the stuff out because it was too toxic, so they added it to a water supply. And, and that was all correlation. There's no data supporting that that's actually good for our teeth. Yeah, it was based right. on a on a observation of a dentist in a small right. town in Colorado that had high mm -hmm. ambient levels of fluoride in the water. So and now right. we have lots of studies indicating from all over the world, and they all pretty much yeah. come to the same conclusion, almost right. 80 studies, that this is bad for the IQ of our children. I mean, it lowers the right. IQ points of children six to nine points. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. And it's toxic in other forms as well. So inner ear, do you think that pineal gland calcification is aggravated right. by fluoride? That's, yeah, that's the next thing that we found is that the fluoride goes to the, to the pineal gland and pineal gland makes the hormone melatonin. Yes, that affects you your see sleep. all these older people, the pineal gland is calcified. And we right. see this on CAT scans in the old people. Right. There's this circular ring in the pineal gland. Right. It's kind of like seeing calcifications or pulp stones inside of a tooth. We yeah. see those on our x-rays. And uh, yeah, yeah. and a lot of that has to do with K2 and calcium metabolism and our diet, minerals. Yeah, fluoride, obviously that's that's a two-hour topic right there. But interesting that you as an ENT have, have thought about it and consider it. And of course, you can filter out fluoride in your water. There are countertop yeah. filters that are very inexpensive. So my recommendation, and again, a lot of dentists will leave the room when I say this, is even before your child is born, while you're pregnant, filter your water yeah. because it does cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, fluoride is is a pretty, it, to me, it's a forever chemical. I classify it as right. a forever chemical because the implications and ramifications are forever. You know, whether it's modeled teeth or fluorosis mm -hmm. to an IQ drop of six to nine points and right. other bone density issues, inner ear, pineal gland, mm -hmm. there's more. Right. It also competes with iodine and calcium. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And other minerals, probably. So yeah. that brings us to 
the next item on the list. Yeah. So these are um, other external factors like these endocrine disruptors in our yeah. chemical, in our pl- plastics and water supply. There's probably hundreds of these to describe, but the one thing that's documented to cause bony changes is these xenoestrogens, mm-hmm. the BPAs and BPA free. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But not even the other BP, whatever. It just hasn't been shown to cause problems. They just go right. from BPA to BP something else. Right. So we don't know. But there's some studies showing that it, it does affect bony development. Totally. Um, and this could also cause the faces to get more feminized. These male faces to get more feminized. We have all these rounder, softer features these days. I think clearly that's um, what's happened. I think it's a big factor. I would put it on the top of the list. I really think we are exposed to so much plastic, air pollution, microplastics, flossing, for example. When you use nylon floss and you floss, little yeah. pieces of plastic are breaking off and they're getting into the crevices, into the mm-hmm. sulcus, the pocket. And you know there's inflammation related to that, but we are loaded with microplastic. It's actually found in the blood. I mean, and that has an effect. We know that. We have all the rat yeah. studies, those poor rats. Uh, we've seen the changes, the feminine faces of male movie stars, and it's amazing. It's a big problem. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. It definitely is affecting facial development. I think it's yeah. a big driver. That and breastfeeding. And, yeah. And, well, and there's one supply, more. Which is, so those three. And the, la- the last one is uh, something that we probably don't think about in terms of facial development, and that's glyphosate, which is the... the Monsanto product. or Yeah, Monsanto. Exactly. Yeah. But this is part of the whole GMO process where they develop these grains that are resistant to glyphosate. So, But then all the weed around it just dies off. Right. And this is actually originally patented as a chemical chelating agent to clean industrial tanks of yeah. minerals. So it binds these two plus cation minerals, like calcium, manganese, iron, those kind of important minerals, right? Right. I um, mean, it reaches out the anti- building blocks that we need to grow. Exactly. And also, yeah. also um, it, was, it was patented as an antibiotic. So this is sprayed multiple times throughout all of our food crops. Right. I mean, everything. And if you look at the rate of chronic diseases, once it started to go, go up, I forget mm-hmm. what year was, like early 90s, it started to go up like this. All the other chronic diseases went at the same rate. It is yeah. very depressing. <laughs> and to me, that's another forever chemical. It's interesting how these corporations, for example, Crisco Oil was an engine lubricant <sighs> before yeah, right. it was brought in, and, and the industrial seed oils. And now it's put into artificial meat. And I don't know if you saw this study. It just came out. I think Chris Kresser was the one who brought it out in the open first. We know the effects of industrial seed oils, but one thing I didn't know is that it actually makes you hungrier. When you ingest industrial seed oil, it makes you hungrier. And I don't know if big food understands that, but if they do, boy, they're they're onto a great product. Well, and they, they probably know that already. <laughs> they probably do. They probably do. But you know, stay away from that. So let's stop here. I would love to get you back on the podcast. There's so much to talk about. And I just want to further this whole collaboration between medicine and dentistry. And I think we did a great job today, Steve. I just want to say it's pretty depressing what we talked about. I think you would agree, especially if you have children. If you're an old guy like me, it's like, okay, well, I'm just doing the best I can. I'm trying to chelate all this crap out of me. And I wear an oral appliance and I sleep well, but I had to work on that. I've learned how to season a carbon steel pan properly any of the nonstick pans are bad for you. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Maybe a ceramic pan, but they're a pain in the neck and they're, they break easily. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best and I'm trying to set an example for my grandchildren. I set an example for my kids, but, you know, I'm trying to take it to a new level here. I wouldn't feel too bad 
the thing that keeps me going is that the body is an amazing thing and it can take a certain amount. There's a threshold of toxins and environmental issue uh, elements that we come across that, and, and that's how we evolved. I mean, we're pretty tough. And I think just working on minimizing it and living a good, clean life, I think you'll be fine typically. And so don't get discouraged. If you want to learn more about facial development, go to askthedentist.com. Of course, we've talked about it a lot. I'm going to put a lot of these resources that we talked about. We've got Moo, we've got Hang, uh, Brian Palmer. I love what he talks about with uh, breastfeeding and all of that. The Fork, the book, I'll put that in there as well. Is there anything that you would like viewers and listeners to look at, stuff you've done? I mean, I have a list of things that I'm going to put in your book, of course, yeah. on sleep, which I think is one of the better books on sleep. I can only think of one other book that I would compare. That would be Matthew Walker's book. And again, your book, I think, came out a while ago. What, 12 years ago? It's yeah. one of the early yeah. ones. So fortunately, most of the concepts are still valid, up to yep. date. I could do an update, but I've kind of put that on hold for now and mm -hmm. focused on my more up-to-date online courses, which is updatable really easily. Whereas books, it takes time to, to update. It gets out of date pretty quickly. So right now it's just digital content for me. But go to my website, drstevenpark.com uh, with my information and my YouTube channel, which is just look up Dr. Stephen Park on YouTube. Okay. And that's- That's my, that's uh, my main channel now. It's, it's my main um, format is YouTube, my YouTube videos. And I send a lot of people your way because I know that when they come back, they'll have a fundamental understanding of what the problem is. And I think that's the beauty of what you're doing is you really explain it very, very well. I'll put a link. I was thinking of doing this before we even spoke, but a link to your latest video on how to clear your nose. And oh, yeah. uh, and I think these are practical tips. Um, I'm guilty of this. I always paint the picture pretty bleak and dark, and I tell you everything that's wrong in the world. And then I'm, I'm weak on giving... Uh, solutions. And, and so that's why I steer them to you, uh, Steve. You've got a great presence on the web and I thank you for everything you've done. And I just want to say, you've been a big influence on me, especially in my early years. Uh, I was uh, in sleep. You know, I got a lot of information from the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine, but there was a big component of that wasn't clear and wasn't well-defined. And so coming around and watching your, I hadn't read your book until recently, but your podcast, I loved your podcast. I thought that was with your wife. And I thought that was very well done because, and, and I steer a lot of young practitioners to those early episodes because it explains it so well. It's a great introduction. And it's also for the layperson, obviously, as well. But that was a wonderful addition to my education on sleep and sleep disorder breathing. So I thank you for that. Anything else you want to say? Any last tips? Let me ask you this question. What one tip or one hack or tweak, I hate mm -hmm. I hate saying that, but people understand that, that you've been using lately for sleep that you have found that works very, very well. Well, let me tell you what I do every night. And okay. maybe you use some of this too. Yep. I tape my lips. And, and you, the way you I do it vertically. is- I, I tape vertically. And the reason for this is that if you tape horizontally, you can still open your jaws a lot. Mm-hmm. And I saw that on the sleep endoscopy, when you tape, keep the lips closed and you, you can still open the jaws a lot, the airway closes down significantly more right. than if you tape, if you, if you hold the chin up a little bit. Yes. So when you tape, you go under your chin to kind of suspend the jaw a little bit, but not nice. too tight. In dentistry, we call that a vertical dimension. And if you make yeah. an oral appliance or an occlusal mm -hmm. guard, there are plenty mm -hmm. of studies that say a simple occlusal guard will, by opening the vertical dimension, by putting something in there and widening that dimension, you're actually uh, closing up the airway. I saw that with a lot of these 
these oh, sleep appliances. endoscopy. Yeah. 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 Uh, explain um, real quickly, that, sleep endoscopy. Most people don't understand okay. what that is. Yeah. So this is, it's like a colonoscopy. There's the same medication. Mm-hmm. You put to sleep under light anesthesia, like toilet anesthesia, and no tube in the throat. I just look with the camera at your airway to see what's happening when you're breathing. Right. And ever since I started doing that on a routine basis, it's incredible what I've, what I've found. People without sleep apnea have these crazy things happening, like the epiglottis is flopping back, tongue is falling back. Most people have these multiple areas of obstruction, not just one area. Right. So these people are told they're crazy because they can't sleep, but they don't have sleep apnea. I rely heavily on sleep endoscopy. Obviously, I can't do it. I wish Dennis could do nasal endoscopy with that modified Mueller's maneuver, but I would send it out. If I wasn't clear that my mandibular advancement device would work or not, because basically it only works if the constriction of the airway is high up, like in the nasopharynx. If it's lower down, by moving the jaw forward with the device, which is expensive, it's a waste of time. So nasal endoscopy is very helpful. One little tip about that. The way the, these advancement device work, devices work is that when you pull the jaw forward, you're putting your tongue forward, right? Mm-hmm. But then there's a band of tissue called the palatoglossal fold mm-hmm. in the right. muscle, and that gets pulled forward. And so if you have a good connection between the tongue and the palate, that's what opens up the soft palate. Right. And that's one of the reasons why these, these nerve stimulator devices, the Inspire procedure, that's how it works. Right. It's not, it's not the tongue, it's a tongue stimulator, but it opens the palate. Exactly. What I did in the sleep endoscopy is I always move the jaw forward to see, is there a coupling with the soft palate right. to see if you're candidate for the mandibular advancement right. device. And that's a modified Mueller's maneuver, isn't it, in a way? Yeah. 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 So I think that's key, and I think that's wonderful. But a lot of physicians, I had to train my ENT, my local ENT, which he, I showed him the studies, and he would always do that for me. I would send my patients over there, and sometimes he would do surgery on them, and that was a great relationship. A lot of dentists now with the cone beam analysis are looking at the position of the hyoid bone with the mandibular advancement. And if you can drop that a little bit, that's a bone that kind of gives that airway some shape, some form, uh, especially when it's uh, flaccid, you know, in deep sleep. So that's uh, the same thing. What else? What else do you, uh, are you looking at? So on top of the taping, I also use my breathe right strips. I mean, I've tried the cones. I don't find them as comfortable. I'm yeah, very they're sensitive. Not. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to so try I'm the, happy the, with... the strips. Yeah. And then uh, my pillow, very important in your neck position. Very important. When you're and I, I, I can't sleep on my side, no matter how much I try. It's right. too uncomfortable. Yep. So when I sleep on my back, I use a pillow that extends my neck back a little bit. So yes. I use a Huskfield pillow. And what I did was I made a makeshift pillow where I put a wooden dowel right in the middle of the Huskfield husk wow. pillow right. to kind of give it more support because with support time, it kind, of, it kind of sags. You know, even the, these memory foam pillows, you get good support like this, but then with time, it just sags down because of exactly. heat. Exactly. Right. And then you're like this. You want right. to be like this. It's almost like giving right. uh, CRP. Uh, not CRP. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. you, you have to make right. sure the airway is open so you, you bring back the patient's head a little bit, you know, and swipe and make sure the airway is open. So that's very important. Pillows are key. So a walnut husk pillow, but you added what? A little piece of wood in there or stitched yeah, wood, it in? Wooden dowel. Wooden dowel. That's yeah. smart. You should patent that. <laughs> Don't no have time. time to do that. <laughs> right. What else? What else do you do? Do you take any supplements before bed? I don't. I really don't believe in that. I think you should modify your lifestyle so that you don't need supplements before you go right. to bed. Right. But you have to use light really, really smartly. Very. And that's something that that most people are really, really deficient in, which is most modern people use their screens before bedtime. That's the yes. worst thing you can do. Big mistake. So no screens at all. Right. I mean, even if you have the screen, the the, the um the, the blue light filters. Yep. The content of the internet is just yes. bad. 
Exactly. You don't want to put that into your mind. So um, I agree with also, that. I used to think it was blue light, you know, if you're using your phone or iPad before you go to bed, but I think it's actually the content and getting those emails and because your right. reward center is being right. stimulated. And I think that's a mistake. Right. You really need to be winding down. And, you know, my wife and I are, are slowly feeling our way up the stairwell and very dark <laughs> lighting and we don't turn on the lights. We brush our teeth in the dark and, and all of that. So I think that really does help. Also eating and uh, drinking alcohol, keep that far, far away from bedtime. Oh yeah, four or five as early as possible. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the other thing is that shine as much sunlight into your eyes and your body, in especially the morning. early morning sunlight. Yep. So go for a walk. If you have to get a dog, get a dog so you can walk the dog. Just do anything possible to get sunlight, even if it's overcast, get sunlight into your eyes right. 15, 20 minutes in the morning. Yeah. I think most what people don't understand day. that. I mean, there's this stage, the staging, and the staging is not just at night. When you go to sleep, there's staging of different cycles of sleep. But that staging, I like to extend to, uh, it resets at wake up, right? And then mm-hmm. there, you know, there's the adenosine, there's melatonin, there's all that. All that stuff, you need a certain amount of time for it to be done properly. If you don't see sunlight very early in the morning, you've delayed and you can't compress that staging into a short period of time, just like you can't burn the midnight oil and sleep well in a shorter period of time. You need that amount of time to let the body go through that rhythm. That is so important. And the most important thing you can do is go outside first thing in the morning and get a lot of sun. I mean, trunk exposure, if you can drink your coffee outside, you know, or do some work outside on a screen. So along with that, one important concept in sleep medicine that people don't know about is that if left alone and you have no light as what's called entrainment, there's no light simulation, right. put people in dark caves, what happens is that your sleep clock slowly gets more and more delayed. Yes. So if you don't keep shining light in the morning, it's going to get later and later. Right. So and there's a, sy- there's and a later, syndrome. What's the syndrome there? Where that's, that's called delayed sleep phase syndrome, but that's an exactly. exaggerated version of this. Right. But it happens naturally by itself. It does. And of course, there are the early researchers went into a cave for a long time. And they discovered a lot of things there. So fascinating stuff. We could talk forever. Dr. Stephen Park, Steve, thank you so much. This was very, very interesting and and fun. And I think to me, it was fun because as a dentist, it's nice to be able to speak to a physician on this level. And, And I think it's very instructive to me as a dentist. I just wish I saw it more on my end of things. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I have a lot of physicians that I work with. They're wonderful, but it doesn't always work out this way. And I'm sure you've experienced the same and your frustration with your colleagues, but also with other dentists that just don't know a lot of what they should know. So again, this serves as a great example of what can be done between the two professions. And we have to fix that and we will soon. So again, thank you so much. I will include all your links and I hope we can do this again soon. If you are enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to leave a review. This will help others discover the same oral health information that you've been using to optimize your overall health. As always, I appreciate your support and your reviews. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a dentist, doctor, or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional dental care provider, you can visit askthedentist.com directory and search our Find a Dentist database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, is a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.